Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm excited to welcome three guests today as we're hosting a panel to discuss drug development for rare diseases. The three guests that are joining us today are Artie Sukosuko, co-founder and CEO of DTX Pharma, James Mackay, president and CEO at Aristia Therapeutics, and Esley Dennis, chief medical officer at Kiowa Kieran. Welcome to all of you and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great, Esley. So to kick us off, if you don't mind, just introduce yourself and a bit of what you're working on these days. Yeah, thanks very much, Rahul. And firstly, thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this panel with my wonderful colleagues, James and Artie. So I'm the Chief Medical Officer and the Head of the North American Medical Affairs Organization at Kiwa Kieran. And Kiwa Kieran is a Japan-based global specialty pharmaceutical company. I joined the organization just over 18 months ago. And I'll tell you a bit about my background and I can tell you a little bit more about what we're doing at Kiwa Kieran. So I'm a physician. I did my training and I was in clinical practice for over 10 years in Zimbabwe and South Africa. Then I joined the pharmaceutical industry and actually embarked upon an incredibly rich and vibrant journey that had me working on three continents between Africa, Europe and the United States. And it really gave me a very broad experience across clinical development, regulatory affairs, safety, medical affairs and commercial I spent many years at Novartis that really took me from South Africa to Switzerland and then across to the United States, and then spent a couple of years at the Critical Path Institute based in Tucson, Arizona, which is really focused on the regulatory qualification of biomarkers, which is really a wonderful experience in a not-for-profit organization that was really organized around a consortium model. And then I joined Roche Tissue Diagnostics, which is also based in Tucson, Arizona, and spent you know, almost eight years focused on diagnostics, mostly in oncology. And then I had the opportunity to join Kira Kieran as their chief medical officer. And, and here at Kira Kieran, you know, we have really got a, or had a very long history of bringing novel and innovative products to a number of therapeutic areas, including to rare diseases. And really, we are really driven by our core values, which truly embrace the harmonization of our Japanese cultures and our Western cultures. And so, you know, our core values are, are really around commitment to life, integrity, innovation, and teamwork, WA. So WA, WA, is a Japanese concept that translated means harmonious and trusted cooperation for the good of the community. And that's truly what we focus in on. And I think we really are quite a unique organization with embracing those cultures and keeping that patient front and center of everything that we do. And particularly so important when we're dealing with rare diseases. So that's a bit about my background. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Leslie. James, over to you, please. Now, thanks. So James Mackay, CEO and founder of Aristea Therapeutics. I've been involved in drug development for over 35 years. I was a long-term executive at AstraZeneca. I was there for nearly 30 years. My role prior to founding Aristea Therapeutics, I was CEO of a subsidiary of AstraZeneca called Ardea Biosciences, and then founded Aristea Therapeutics back in August 2018, so just over four years ago. We're an immunology-focused clinical stage biotech based in San Diego, focusing on inflammatory diseases. We really focus in two main areas, dermatology and rheumatology. Our lead asset is called RIST4721. It's a CXCR2 antagonist, works by stopping neutrophils trafficking from the bone marrow 
to the site of inflammation. And we're exploring four different neutrophil-mediated diseases. We're in phase 2B with homoplantar postulosis and phase 2A with hydratinitis suppurativa, familial Mediterranean fever and Bechet's disease. We've raised $138 million to date and also have a relationship with Pfizer. They have an exclusive option to acquire the company. Great. Thank you, James. And over to you, RT, please. Hi. Well, thank you for having me as well. I'm Artie, the CEO of DTX Pharma based in San Diego. My background is I did my PhD in pharmacology at UCSD, uh, mostly in the diabetes space. Started my industry career at Johnson & Johnson. That was mostly small molecules. Moved over to AstraZeneca, where I worked quite a bit on on biologics, peptides, antibodies, all sorts of, of conjugates. I unknowingly overlapped with James at the time. And now we've become very good friends and he's a trusted advisor. But after that, I ended up moving back to San Diego to Regulus Therapeutics. And that's where I came to know the challenge that DTX Pharma works on, the delivery of RNA therapeutics and specifically siRNA therapeutics, which you know have the potential to inhibit the expression of disease-causing genes. And it was really a combination of experiences working on fatty acids in small molecule world at J&J and leveraging fatty acids to protract the half-life of peptide therapeutics that provided the inspiration for DTX. And that inspiration was that there was probably ways that you could leverage fatty acids to overcome some of the historical delivery challenges with this specific class of therapeutics. At DTX, we're about a little less than a year from the clinic in a peripheral neuropathy called Charcot-Marie Tooth 1A disease. That's probably the farthest along and what the subject of our conversations today will be about. But I'll just mention that we play in other CNS disorders as well as neuromuscular disorders as well. They're just earlier stage projects. And with respect to funding, early funding came from Eli Lilly. Most recently, we raised $100 million led by RA Capital, and that was really to get us to clinical development of CMT1A. Great. Thank you, everyone, for that background and for setting the context here. For starters, let's just jump in and talk about the patient journey. And Esli, I'll start with you. Talk to us about how the patient journey for a rare disease patient is perhaps different than other indications that are not rare diseases. Yeah, thanks, Rahul. That's a really important question. You know, rare diseases by definition occur in very, very few patients. And you know, the FDA defines a rare disease as one occurring in fewer than 200,000 people here in the United States. But you know, while individually rare diseases are uncommon, when you look at them collectively as a category, they really have a significant impact and are far reach. I mean, I think it's estimated that one in 10 Americans, about 30 million people in America are living with a rare disease. And so for the vast majority of these diseases, not much is known about them at all. You know, we, in fact, we quote the numbers of about 7,000 to 8,000 known rare diseases. But more recently, there was a group called Rare X that did a very deep and comprehensive analysis around trying to classify the number of rare diseases and came up with a number of just over 10,800. And I think it was really an important initiative because if you cannot identify a rare disease and describe it, then it cannot be diagnosed. If you can't identify a rare disease, it can't be studied. And if you can't identify a rare disease, you can't develop drugs in terms of you know, treatment for those rare diseases. And so I think we find that you know, with these rare diseases, these are poorly understood biologically. Very little is known about them. 
Very little is known about the natural history about bees. And when patients present, their physician may not even be aware of the condition that they're looking at, or they may never have seen a patient like that. And so these patients, they typically embark upon a very lengthy and very frustrating diagnostic odyssey. In fact, on average, between seven to eight years before an accurate diagnosis is made in these patients, they see on average seven physicians before an accurate diagnosis is made. And so I think that really results in these patients having to navigate through an already complex healthcare system and really become their own advocates. Not only are they living with this rare disease, you know, 24-7 themselves and their parents. I mean, 50% of people living with the rare disease are, are children. And so there's families, 80% of them have a genetic component. And so you could have multiple members in the same family trying to navigate through the system where so little is known about this. And so I think there really requires a really a significant awareness for these conditions because in the absence of an accurate diagnosis, these patients can't get the appropriate intervention or appropriate treatment. And so these conditions continue to progress, become more severe. So I think these are really the frustrations that we deal with. I think the other challenge is that many of the symptoms of these patients with rare diseases, they also appear quite commonly in common diseases. And so, you know, when we're in medical school, we're taught when you hear hoofs, think horses, not zebras. And so the common entity is sort of thought of first before the rare disease, if that is even considered. And when we think about kids and pediatrics, you know, sometimes these symptoms get dismissed as well. You know, these are developmental delays, just give it time and everything will be okay. So I think there's a lot of tremendous frustrations with this patient group in terms of just to get to an accurate diagnosis. And then even when there is an accurate diagnosis, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's an appropriate treatment for them. You know, about 5% of known rare diseases have an approved therapy, which means we have 95% of them out there, and let alone those diseases that we haven't yet even diagnosed that need treatments for. Thanks, Leslie. James, I'm curious, over the last decade or so, particularly on this topic of driving disease awareness, what have you seen that's changed or improved in terms of driving that awareness? And and what are you personally excited about? So I think, you know, for these patients with rare disease, certainly the patient advocacy groups have continued to develop. And these patients are really empowering themselves to demand better treatments and also to work with pharmaceutical companies in order to develop that. As Esley said, you know, there are so many of these rare diseases where there really isn't a standard of care and the patients really don't have anything that they can take to actually alleviate the symptoms of the disease. So you'll often find that, you know, these patients are very invested in what pharmaceutical companies are trying to do to help develop treatments here and patient advocacy groups as well. And I'm sure Artie will be able to talk to that given DTX's focus. I think the other thing that's important, and as I touched on it, is that often, you know, the natural history of these diseases is not well understood. It's not well documented. And so often from a pharmaceutical development perspective, you know, we're actually developing that natural history as we conduct the clinical trials. And that makes the design of clinical programs for rare diseases more challenging. But it is an incredibly rewarding area you know, because there's such a significant unmet medical need and often, you know, very few um, drugs in development. So you have an opportunity to really make a big difference for these patients. Great. And Artie, I'm curious on the topic of, again, on of advocacy groups, what does a good relationship and partnership for biotech look like with some of these patient advocacy groups? 
I'll start off by following up on some of Esley's and James' point, but maybe starting off, the DTX story really was with respect to how we got involved in CMT1A was driven by advocacy groups. We actually were at Bio in 2019 and the advocacy group requested a meeting with us to tell us about you know this particular indication. And I actually was in the wrong conference room at the time, so I missed the initial meeting, but caught up with them later and they provided me with a publication that said, you know, why this particular indication was awesome for a potential RNA therapeutic. And so I think, you know, to James's point, that sort of speaks to how the advocacy groups of these rare disease foundations are taking some of this into their own hands and telling drug hunters, you know, work on my disease and this is why. And then one other point I wanted to highlight was the challenge with diagnosis and this disease, you know, these kids, their parents take them to the doctor, you know, when they're kids and the, they're sort of nondescript symptoms, my kids has trouble with balance, they're falling and they're sent from doctor to doctor to doctor, uh, initially sent home because all kids kind of fall and they trip. But, you know, sometimes these patients are on the operating table three or four years later and, and someone figures that you shouldn't be having surgery because this is something else. So, you know, I just echoing that it's frustrating. And then I think with respect to the value of the relationship, I mean, look, DTX is unique because the first investment this particular foundation ever made was in DTX. And we've been kind of growing up with them. I kind of say our, you know, our companies have evolved together and we're tackling some of these challenges together. And some of the challenges that we face are just educating investors on the indication, on potential outcomes, how to study it on the natural history data that's available, educating pharma, educating patients. So there's a lot of education across a number of fronts that it's helpful to have a partner who share some of the frustrations and who you can be creative with as you try to seek forums to get the word out. Thanks, Artie. Great points. On the topic of, of partnerships, James, you mentioned you have a partnership that you're pursuing right now with Pfizer. If others have experience, please jump in as well. But I'm curious, as you think about building relationships with big pharma, specifically in rare disease indications, particularly for our audience and who might not have gone through this, what are some of the important points to consider when deciding whether to go down a partnership route with pharma or not? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I never approach it in that way. So for me, it's about being able to help the patients. So, you know, identifying the diseases where the science really supports the mechanism of action of your molecule I think it is critical to me. And then understanding that patient journey that we've just been talking about and understanding the natural history of the disease really plays into how you design the clinical trial program. And I think, you know, partnership with pharma actually comes as a result of that and the data that are generated. And, you know, different pharmas have got different perspectives on, on rare diseases. Some of them are very focused on it. Some of them are not focused on it at all. But I think, you know, those partnerships come as a result of the data that you produce in trying to address the unmet medical needs for those patients. And maybe I can also add to that piece. Please. So, you know, I think building on what James said, it's really about who has the right skill set and the right tools to help us take this over the finish line. Because we recognize, especially in rare diseases, you know, we know so little about it unless you're actually living with that rare disease. So we come into it with the best intention, you know, making assumptions, but they may not be accurate. And do we have the right skill set? Do we have the right biomarkers? Do we understand the right patient reported outcomes? And so I think partnerships are so essential, but you have to figure out who are the right people, right skill sets to focus on a particular disease area. 
and whether those are partnerships with another pharma company that has similar kind of vision with the right tools to help you, especially when you're thinking about a global indication as well. You know, at Kieran, you know, we have a long-standing history of many, many successful partnerships that have really helped us being able to translate science and put it in the hands of patients. But that partnership with the patient advocacy groups as well is so essential. And, you know, from the earliest point, from the earliest possible point, because you really want to be able to incorporate, first of all, ask the patient community, what do you need from us? And really start from there and then work on the science and say, okay, what do we have in terms of our molecule? Ensuring the rigor around that science, then how do we develop that clinical development program and those protocols and bringing that collaboration between experts from maybe different pharma companies, internal expertise, but then the patients themselves to really look at that protocol and help you design a protocol that's going to make recruitment attainable, that's not going to put up barriers to recruitment, but then also to find those patients and to be that intermediary that's a trusted partner. Because remember, after seven years of navigating through a system that maybe they don't particularly trust because it's been so challenging, being able to then come together with a patient advocacy group to say, here's a company that's developing a molecule and we'd like to work with this company together. I think that trust is so important in those partnerships to move it forward. Yeah, certainly agree. And, you know, I think the general population has quite a bit of distrust with pharma. And I think patient advocacy groups do a great service in helping patients think about, you know, the true landscape around biotech and why some of these trials are worth pursuing and educating the general public on what drug development is as well. Let's talk a little bit about clinical trial design now and would love James or Leslie to start how you think about clinical trial design for a rare disease patient population and what are some frameworks that the audience can perhaps apply to their own programs? Yes, I'm happy to kick off. I think for rare diseases, The real difference in terms of clinical trial design is that in many cases, you have no precedent. There may have been no clinical trials conducted on a particular disease or indeed very few. And if there's never been a therapy that's actually been approved, then there is no precedent. There is no clear path through the design of the program and ultimately to FDA or EMA review and approval of the program. I think the other thing that plays into it is often the scant data that's available on natural history of the disease. So how does the disease manifest um, in these patients? What's important to the patients? And that's where, you know, linking back to our previous topic, that's where engagement with patients and the patient advocacy groups is, is critical in order to understand that. Otherwise, you could design a clinical trial program that doesn't actually address the unmet medical needs of the patients just because it's not very well understood. It's a voyage of discovery every time you set out to try and address a rare disease and you you actually learn and adapt as you move through the program. So, you know, what is the best endpoint to use? What are the symptoms that are most important to the patients and how do you design your clinical trial program in order to address that? 
And it's also a voyage of discovery with the regulatory authorities as well, because they may never have seen a clinical trial program opposite this particular disease before. And they certainly will never have approved a medication. So there is, you know, no precedent from their perspective as to how to design it. So, you know, presents a lot of challenges, but then obviously opens up opportunities to make a big difference, as we talked about before. You think about these clinical trial challenges in rare disease and sort of four buckets. So I think about the disease, design, patient, and site. So, you know, as, as James said, we don't know much about these diseases and they're very complicated. We have small numbers of them, poor biological understanding. But I think the other challenge with many of these rare diseases, 80% of them have a genetic component, but there's a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of genetic heterogeneity, a lot of phenotypic heterogeneity, very complex interplay between them. And so this very high rate of heterogeneity makes it more challenging to think about designing a trial. We also have a lack of biomarkers. So right from the very outset, it's really, what are we even going to do from a diagnostic biomarker perspective or a prognostic and predictive biomarkers? And then when we think about design factors, you know, as James said, there's no established endpoints. Thinking about how are we going to even think about statistical analysis when we don't know about the natural history, we don't know how many numbers we have, we don't know what kind of delta we're likely to see with with an intervention, we don't know what the diagnostic testing requirements are going to be. And then when we think about doing trials in children, so 50% of people living with a rare disease are children. And whether you have a rare disease or not, the FDA has guidances and regulations around clinical trials in children that introduce additional safeguards. So how do you ensure that there's just minimal risk to patients? So when you start thinking about a protocol, do you have interventions in this protocol that are above and beyond standard of care from the research perspective? So do I have to do a liver biopsy in this trial? Does this child have to undergo sedation? I mean, those are things that really have to be minimized in these trials with, with pediatric patients. And then you also have to think about the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So many of these patients are very sick. There's multi-organ involvement. And so they may not meet the inclusion criteria. And for many of these patients, participation in a clinical trial really is their only hope. There are no other therapies. And so quite disappointing for families and for patients when they hear of a drug that's in development, but they don't actually meet the clinical and the, the enrollment criteria for that. And then when we actually think about the patient factors themselves, you know, they could be scattered across geographies. They may have to travel long distances to come in to a specialist center. If they're coming in with kids, could be long days in a hospital doing consultations and having interventions. And can you have a site where perhaps there's a quiet room where mom and dad and the child can rest in between those? So thinking about the practical factors that are involved in a clinical trial design, you know, if patients have to take off time to come to do a clinical trial or if they're a parent and they have to take off time from work and they have to worry about childcare as well for siblings. Those are other factors that we have to, you know, bear in mind with this as well. And then when we think about the site itself, you know, there's often very few experienced sites that we can look to. And then if we try and open up new sites, many sites may be reluctant to take on a rare disease study because, you know, there's small numbers of patients. It could be a lengthy study. It could be an unpredictable timeline, but yet they have to maintain all of the operational infrastructure of that trial site. So I think all of those factors make for quite a complex um, situation. And of course, every single data point is precious, especially when you're dealing with rare diseases, when you have so few patients in them. And people of color with a rare disease face disparities, not only in access to care, but also are you know, underrepresented in clinical trials. 
I'm curious if there were any best practices that you all would like to share with the audience around how to drive not only awareness, but then inclusion of people of color in rare disease trials. So I think that's an incredibly important point. I think in general, we have underrepresentation of, of diverse communities in clinical trials, but even more so in rare diseases. The FDA recently came up with a guidance, in fact, to address diversity and diversity, inclusion of diversity plans and submitting a diversity plan to the IND, where they expect, you know, they'd like sponsors now to lay out exactly how do they intend to address that, how they're going to address that in terms of their goals, their recruitment goals, how they're going to address that in terms of community engagement, working with community centers, with local physicians, with patient advocacy groups. And I think a key aspect is getting awareness out there. But a big challenge is that there's also a lack of sites within those communities where we see um, underrepresented patients. The other aspect around that is, you know, if you think about parents that have to perhaps hold on to two jobs just to put food on the table, who may not have a car and have to rely upon public transport, how do we make that easier for those patients and their families to participate in these clinical trials? And so thinking about decentralized components to a clinical trial, how can we bring more to the community versus trying to expect the community to come and travel long distances to specialized centers? But it is an ongoing challenge. It's something that we at Curicurin are particularly aware of and are really investing in you know, educational grants, investing in research grants to try and drive that awareness around the need to include um, diverse populations in our clinical trials. I can add to that. At Aristea, you know, we have a focus on diversity within the organization, but also with our clinical trials. And I agree with uh, all the comments that Esley made. I think the fact that the FDA have come out with the draft guidance is important, and they're expecting sponsor pharmaceutical companies and biotechs to submit their diversity plan to the IND. And I think that'll drive real change in terms of the way that we can get, you know, more diverse population involved in clinical trials. I think there are also some fundamentals as well. Esley talked about the operational aspects of the trial, and I think those are critical. I mean, we have to be able to provide more flexibility to allow more underrepresented groups and a more diverse population to uh, be part of the clinical trials. But there are also fundamentals as well, you know, and I think if we sit back and take a look at our clinical trial protocols and try to look at that with a diversity lens on it, then we'll start to see lots of language in there that actually is putting up barriers to people from diverse backgrounds. And we really have to think about the language that we use and the way that we categorize people in our clinical trials and change that in order to allow them to come into the clinical trials or even just feel comfortable that someone like them, that's a place for them that they can go and be comfortable. I think it's also very pleasing to see the number of initiatives that are being kicked off. We talked earlier about our partnership with Pfizer. Pfizer themselves have a partnership with an organization called Headlands Research, specifically aimed at driving diversity, an organization that we use for clinical trial recruitment, an org- they're called Trial B, actually announced that they've actually gone into partnership with an organization called Brookmate specifically using predictive analytics and machine learning in order to drive more diversity into the recruitment of patients into clinical trials. So I think as we see all these things coming together, we'll see a big shift in the accessibility of clinical trials to a more diverse population. 
I'll just echo what James and Esley said. I mean, we're at the earliest stages of thinking about clinical development, but you know, even for getting funding these days, you have to um, think about diversity and how you're going to get access to underrepresented or alternatively folks that, that can't typically afford to um, you know, take off work, et cetera, to go and get treatments. And conscious of time, I think you both did a great job of saying that, but I want everyone to hear DTX's position on this is, you know, in favor of what you guys have laid out. Thanks, Artie. And actually to add on to that, you know, having recently raised around last year for obviously a, a rare disease company, what are some of the complexities and types of questions that you often get from investors when you are targeting a rare disease population that you need to overcome? Yeah. So on this subject, I think, you know, from the earliest stages of identifying targets and such, a lot of the same questions that investors ask emerge, right? They want to know how quickly can you get a signal in clinical development that this may or may not be working. In some diseases, fortunately, in CMT1A, there's been quite a bit of natural history work and efforts by groups of physicians to identify things like target engagement assays to quantify, you know, if you suppress this gene, you know, how can we measure it in patients? They've developed biomarkers and outcomes measures. But, you know, we look at, you know, more than a dozen different diseases a year and it becomes really hard to justify or, or develop a drug um, when you're missing a lot of these potential benchmarks. And the reason I'm laying this out is because investors are hyper-focused on how quickly can you get to proof of concept and get a meaningful signal that tells me whether this drug is going to work or not. And so that is a challenge. And when I'm not on podcasts, <laughs> we spend a lot of time thinking about how to explain to investors how the attractiveness of some of these indications to get rapid proof of concept and why some of these outcomes measures that have been used in other trials are relevant and why they should pay attention to them. It's hard and it's especially hard when you're the first to jump into a new indication, it makes it really challenging. And that's why you know the education is really important. I think one of the good things about rare disease is that investors do see that as an attractive investment in terms of the fact that generally these clinical trials are, are smaller. It's going to be less expensive to get through the clinical development and potentially less expensive, as Artie said, to get to a signal. They also tend to be much less crowded spaces, of course. So there's not so much competition. And those are the, the sort of positive sides. And there's a very, very clear unmet medical need. I think the challenges from an investor perspective, I agree with all of the comments that Artie made. I think they get concerned about patient recruitment challenges. So, you know, are you actually going to be able to recruit these clinical trials and how long is it going to take to get to that proof of concept? And the other area that I think they get concerned about because it, it, it adds risk into the clinical trial program is the lack of the natural history and the lack of precedent. So, you know, how are you going to navigate the regulatory authorities and how are you going to design that program and what risks do those carry? But I think in general, it is an attractive space for investors because they see that unmet medical need and see the opportunity to get to an answer quickly. Wonderful. Thanks for providing that perspective. I'd like to end on a note around awareness. And we've talked a bit about driving disease awareness. I'm curious for you three leaders at your own companies and also just in the broader biotech ecosystem, what are some best practices that you've seen applied to build empathy on your teams for a patient population that otherwise they didn't know anything about perhaps prior to starting to work at your particular company? You know, we bring patients into the organization. We have them come, they present at our town hall meetings, we interact with them, they share their stories with us. 
we have dialogue with them because, you know, not everybody in the company has seen a patient or has interacted with a patient. And I think hearing these stories from patients, not just patients, their parents, their caregivers. So it's really the whole surround sound of a patient journey that's really important for us to bring. So that's the first thing we do is bring patients so that we have that conversation with patients. And we keep it top of mind, you know, everything we do is around patient first and patient centered. We also have, of course, you know, when it becomes like rare disease day, we'll have initiatives around that to raise awareness around that as well. But I would say it is something that we are conscious of every single day that's kind of just built into the DNA of everything that we do. But I do think that bringing patients to speak with our teams is probably the most powerful way because people never forget the patient stories when they hear them directly from them. Rahul, I would echo Esley's comments. I mean, we have a Aristea Therapeutics, we're a small organization. There's only 12 of us in the company. So we have a singular focus, which is to help these patients. So it's actually not a, it's not a challenge to get the team engaged. That's what they get up and come into work every morning to help these particular patients. And I always say to my teams that, you know, one of the proudest moments that you'll ever have in drug development is going into CVS and Walgreens and seeing a drug that you developed on the shelf in the pharmacy. And with my previous company, which was developing treatments for gout, which is not a rare disease, one of the most sort of spine tingling moments for me was I was in CVS to pick up a script for my wife. And the guy in front of me was handing in his script for the drug that we just got approved for gout. And I was able to stand there and listen to him talking to the pharmacist and the pharmacist explaining about the drug. I really, really wanted to tap him on the shoulder and tell him, but I felt that it was inappropriate that I was kind of invading his privacy from a health perspective, but it was an amazing experience to go through that. I'll just add, you know, sort of the same sort of strategies that they've discussed. We, uh, you know, stand by at DTX, you know, even at our holiday party this year, we brought patients to the holiday party and I had them give, you know, part of, you know, the holiday speech uh, this year showing how important it was the work that we were doing and leading the way in this indication, how it was inspiring other people, you know, to follow us and and such and patient panels. No investor who thinks about investing in DTX gets away without having a, a meeting with a patient. So, you know, those are you know some of the same sort of tools that we use at DTX as well. And Rahul, art has just triggered a memory for me that I'd love to share with you. So the previous yes. company where we were developing the gout treatment, we had an FDA advisory committee, you know, where we, we presented to the FDA and they questioned us. And part of an advisory committee, there's always an open forum where anyone can come along and, and talk positively or negatively about the drug. And we actually had a patient who was on one of our clinical trials. We had nothing to do with him being there. We didn't even know that he was going to be there. And he stood up, explained what his disease was about and explained the way that the treatment had transformed his life. And when he finished, I turned around and looked at my team who were sitting down the side of the room. Every single one of them was crying. So it just has an amazing impact when you can help people. And you know what, and I'll add to that, patients that we've interacted with along the journey I stayed in contact with. There's some patients that I've helped support them in terms of their efforts to get patient advocacy groups going or community groups going. Even though we may no longer be working or I may no longer be with that company working on that therapeutic area, I stay committed to working with those groups because that's a personal lifelong commitment is making a difference in the lives of patients. You know, it's not something you dip your toe in and out of. We're on this journey for the whole journey. And I think that's what you see reflected in both James and, and Artie's comments here as well. 
Mm-hmm. And one more thing I was just going to add that it's so motivating, you know, when you know those people are rooting for you and when you have a tough day at work or tough decisions you have to make, it really keeps you uh, engaged and focused and excited to keep moving forward when even when times get tough. And, and actually, the other motivating thing is when you when you do work with these patient communities and patient groups, they're volunteer organizations run by patients themselves. These could be patients that have a rare cancer that already have brain meds. These could be mm-hmm. patients that have significant symptoms, yet they dedicate themselves and they're tireless in their efforts and they are eternally optimistic. And not only that, they're incredibly generous with their time. I gave a presentation earlier this year and I was kind of highlighting the work with one particular group. And somebody came up to me from the audience afterwards who was with a different patient group and said, oh, you know, that person from that group, which is a completely different therapeutic area, she helped us get our group started. So there is this tremendous generosity in helping not only each other, but the entire patient ecosystem. And I think when you when you see that amount of kindness, that spirit, that determination, I mean, I just feel honored that we can be part of that journey together and help in, in whatever way we can. Well, with those inspiring words from our three guests, thank you to all of you for joining us today and for sharing your perspective on this very important topic of drug development for rare diseases. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Rahul. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.